Well, this is, as uh, all of you know, an election year, and uh, people start thinking about politics and the uh, political process. Most of you, I'm sure, have already decided uh, who you're going to vote for this year. And um, the, um, the, the thing that uh, we often forget at, uh, when thinking about uh, the elective process is that there are profounder things going on than we see on the surface. We tend to think of uh, old conventions, nominating conventions, uh, the primaries, the election itself, the counting of votes, registration of voters, getting the vote out. Uh, we think in terms of party. And uh, while all those things are good and they're all part of, of the process of electing our officials, there are other things that are going on beneath the surface and behind the scenes that we need to be aware of, and it's these things that, that Scripture tells us about. The good thing about uh, God's Word is that it, it reveals things as they really are. Uh, it shows us what's going on beyond, behind history, the, the forces, the dynamics that are at work in the, in the world of the unseen to bring about the events that we call history. And uh, unless we understand what God has to say about these, these events, we may spend a great deal of our time in wasteful pursuits, things that don't really matter, things that don't pay off in terms of eternal uh, benefit. And uh, it's a book like Jeremiah that gives us insight into what's going on uh, behind, uh, behind history. Will you turn with me to the 21st chapter of Jeremiah, Je uh, Jeremiah 21. Beginning with chapter 21, there's a new series of, of messages that are all numbered or dated by events or by dates during the reign of uh, the last kings of, of the Judean uh, Empire. Uh, this particular message is dated during Zedekiah's reign. Zedekiah had the dubious distinction of presiding over the downfall of, of Judah. It was during his his reign, that the nation uh, collapsed and the Babylonians took them off into, into captivity. And uh, Jeremiah, who by this time uh, was more highly regarded than he had, uh, had been earlier because his predictions had come true, uh, was, um, he, he was, they were beginning to listen to him. And Zedekiah sent a delegation of two people to Jeremiah to ask this question, to, ask, uh, to make a request of him. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, son of Melchiah, and the priest Zephaniah, son, son of Messiah. We don't know anything about Pasher. There's another man who bears that name that, who's mentioned earlier in the book. This is a different Pasher, uh, a sort of petty official in the Judean court who was, uh, who was one of Jeremiah's staunchest opponents. He later tried to get him executed. The other man who's, uh, whose name is Zephaniah is unknown to us, although he seems to have been more friendly, less hostile toward Jeremiah. He's not the Zephaniah who wrote the book in our Old Testament that bears that name, but he was some other official in the court, a priest. And uh, these two were sent to Jeremiah to make inquiry of the Lord. They said, Inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Jeremiah said that would happen, and it was more than just a lucky shot uh, God had revealed, that it was only a matter of time before the nation was, 
was scourged by, by Babylon. Now they say, inquire of the Lord, because Nebuchadnezzar is here. He's at the gates. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. In other words, work a miracle. Do something. Get us out of the scrape that we've gotten ourselves in. You know, look at the jam we're in. Help us, Lord. Do something for us. Do the sort of thing that you've done uh, historically for Israel. Things such as the Exodus. Or the miraculous deliverance 150 years before when Hezekiah was king. Sennacherib, uh, who was the Assyrian emperor, brought his, his army against the little city of Jerusalem. Decimated all the surrounding towns. Isaiah says that Jerusalem looked like a uh, watchman's hut in the middle of a cucumber field. Jerusalem was the only city that was left. They had sacked and burned uh, all the smaller cities in the southern kingdom. They had taken hostage some 200,000 people, twice the population of, of the city of Boise, off into, into, uh, into Assyria. And Sennacherib now is knocking at Jerusalem's door. And the Rabshakeh, who was one of his officials, stands at the, at the gates of the city, and uh, he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can mount them. It's sort of like saying to someone that you know you can, uh, you can beat in a fight, I'll tie one hand behind my back or I'll hop on one leg or I'll penalize myself in some ways. Sennacherib says, I'll give you the, the horses if you can put troops on them. And uh, Hezekiah couldn't. They had a very small, pitifully uh, equipped army. It really was no way that, uh, that they could do battle with the Assyrians. Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says, look, don't, don't worry. It's going to be all right. God is on our side. He's going to fight for us. He'll defend us. And as the King James uh, Version puts it, the next morning when they woke up, they were all dead men. A uh, little confusion in the pronouns there. The, the they refers to the Judeans who peered out over the walls down at the Assyrian army, and there were 186,000 Assyrians that had died through a plague the night before. And Sennacherib uh, withdrew in disgrace, went back to uh, Nineveh, and, and for 25 years he, he just had nothing whatever to do with Judah. He just left him alone. And eventually he himself was, was assassinated by his sons. And that's what Isaiah said would happen. Hezekiah, count on the Lord, trust him, he, he'll fight on your behalf. Don't, uh, you don't have to take any action. Wait and let God defend you. And now Zedekiah sends this delegation off to Jeremiah, and he says, pray for us that God will do another one of these uh, great saving acts, another one of these miracles, and deliver us. But uh, in verse 3, we're told that Jeremiah answered them, tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, of, uh, the God of Israel says, I'm going to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands. Your swords will turn in your hands, and they'll fight against you. Those which are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you, I will gather them inside the city. Now get this. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in anger and fury and great wrath. God says that about his own people. I'm on the side of the Babylonians, he says. He said, now wait a minute. Since when does God align himself with godless nations like the USSR, other, other parts of, of our world that are hostile to us? When I was a kid, my uh, uncle brought back from the uh, Second World War a belt buckle that he, he got from someone in Germany. 
that uh, it was from a, there's a Nazi belt buckle, and around the bottom of the, there was an emblem, and then around the emblem it had in German, Gott mit uns, God with us. And I remember when I saw that thinking, God couldn't possibly be on the side of, of the German army in the Second World War. They were the aggressors. They were the oppressors. How could they say God is, is with us? And uh, history has demonstrated that God was not. But uh, we think that about nations like Russia, godless, atheistic, materialistic. Uh, Russia and other, other parts of the world aligned with them against the United States. And we say God is for us. God is going to fight on our side against these, uh, these oppressive regimes. He, he won't have anything to do with, with, with the USSR. But isn't it interesting that God says, I'm going to, I'm going to fight with the, with the Babylonians. The Babylonians worship Marduk and Baal and uh, all of the, uh, most of the gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East were in their pantheon. They didn't worship the Lord of, of Israel. Didn't have any interest in him. Have nothing to do with him. And yet God says, I'm going to fight on their side. Well, what a blow that must have been. He says, I'm going to fight with anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike down those who live in this city, both men and animals. And they will die of a terrible plague. We know from history that was so. It's always true when there's a, when a, a nation, a country blockades another, another country. They begin to die of starvation and, and plague. And that's exactly what happened to the Judeans. After that, declares the Lord, I will hand over Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials, and the people in this city who survived the plague, salmon, uh, famine, and sword. You, you make it through the, the famine and the plague in this uh, besieged city, and I'll, I'll still hand you over to the king of Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, and, and to their enemies who seek their lives. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or, or compassion. Judah was saying God would never permit this city to be taken. This is the city of God. This is the city of David. This is the city where God dwells. This is where the temple is. God would never permit this temple to fall and the priesthood to be scattered. That would never happen to us. Where would God go if he didn't have a temple to, to dwell in? This is Bible city. No, no one can touch us. We're inviolate. But uh, on this particular occasion, God did not align himself with, with Judah. He aligned himself with the Babylonians against Judah. Now, we know why. We know from our studies in Jeremiah. This was a, a nation that was desperately sick, desperately evil. They, though they, they had all the rigmarole that they were still uh, going through in the, in the temple, yet it had no meaning. There's no heart, no reality to it. They turned their backs on God, and they were no longer counting on him and depending on him. And uh, God, in order to purify his people, had for a period of time to do battle with them, go to battle with their enemies against them in order to purge them and purify them and make them what God wanted them to be. We've seen that all the way through. This judgment is never merely punity. It's always designed to purify and to cleanse and to make, make people better. God wanted Judah to be a uh, one 
place on the face of the earth from which truth and light and love and righteousness and justice uh, pervaded, from which this, these things pervaded the rest of the world. But uh, the light had gone out. The love had gone out of their lives. They didn't care. They no longer were proclaiming God's plan to, to save the world. And, and so God says, in effect, we must purge and purify these people. And we'll use the rod of Babylon to do it. And, you know, God may well do that to our nation. Uh, it's an odd thing. We, we pledge allegiance to the flag and we describe ourselves as a nation under God. A nation under God. We're not even talking about the Christian God. We're, just, we're talking about God, that's all. And the highest court in our land, the court that uh, is, is put into place in order to maintain law and order and justice, won't even let children in our churches pray. I mean, in our schools, pray. How can we any longer describe ourselves as a godly nation when that sort of thing is happening? Uh, our Constitution says that we are created free and equal, and yet uh, in, in most public schools today, creationism as an alternate view can't be taught. A, uh, evolution is the only system that's taught. And... Uh, and on and on it goes. We, we look at our nation and we see it beginning to decay and to disintegrate and collapse around us. And, and I don't see how we can any longer describe ourselves as a, as a Christian nation. According to our Constitution, we all have certain inalienable rights and that among these are life, the right to life. And yet we, we take the life of unborn human beings by the thousands. How can we escape? What makes us think that uh, we're any better off than, than Judah? Jeremiah said to the people in Jerusalem, if you want to know how God reacts in a, to a situation like that, go off to Shiloh and you know, walk through the ashes up there and see what God did to the sanctuary there. The sanctuary was the, was the location of the, of the ark and the tabernacle at Shiloh, and the Philistines had sacked and burned the city and taken the ark off into, into captivity. And, God is saying, in effect, these, these articles that you use to worship, these, this furniture, these, these buildings don't mean a thing if there's no heart in it. It's all surface. There has to be reality there. And God may well use the USSR to scourge us. He may well do that. There are no guarantees that he won't. And while I think uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with trying to resist the spread of totalitarianism where and, and how we can, I certainly would not want to live under a totalitarian government. Yet God may permit the United States to go through that kind of disciplinary action as long as we play games with the truth. Now that's true of nations and it's also true of, of individuals. Um, let me begin reading with verse 8. Tell the people, I'm reading from chapter 21, verse 8. Tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I'm setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. 
He will escape with his life. I have determined to, to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the, into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. It sounds like treason. And Jeremiah was uh, accused of, of, uh, of, of being a traitor. But in the ancient Near East, uh, in the rules of total war, if you, if you resisted a siege, then the invading army had the right to destroy men, woman, child, animals, just to decimate the population. But if you, if you surrendered, then they would spare you. That was, those were the rules of the game. It was Robert's Rules of Order or the Geneva Convention rules or whatever back in those days. That's, that's the way they did war. And Jeremiah says, if, if you submit to God's yoke, if you see this as the hand of God upon you and his, his judgment on the nation, and you, not, and you don't resist it, then you'll be spared. But if you resist it, then, then you'll be annihilated. And then he speaks a word to the royal house of Judah, that is the uh, dynasty of David. Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, and specifically to Zedekiah, who was the last of that royal house, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. This is what the Lord says. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed, or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. It will burn with no one to quench it. I am against you, O Jerusalem, you who live above this valley on the rocky plateau, who can say, who can come up against us? Jerusalem is located on a, a little ridge still there today with valleys on both sides and it seemed impregnable and they were saying who, who can come up against us who can enter our refuge God says I will discipline you as your deeds deserve I'll kindle a fire in your forest that will consume everything around you see what God is concerned about is not uh, not parties so much as personal righteousness do good he says to the widows and to orphans to those that are too weak to do anything for them for themselves. It's interesting that throughout the ancient world, even in, in secular pagan literature, that was a mark of, of right thinking and right living to take care of widows and orphans. That phrase occurs. A good man or a good woman is someone that cares for the weak and the helpless. Widows and orphans specifically are mentioned. And Jeremiah says, you, you know, in effect, you're not even measuring up to the standards of the people around you. If you want to demonstrate that your hearts are right and that you belong to God, begin to care for the weak and, and the humble and the, and the helpless, minority groups, those that are struggling and suffering around. And he addresses that to the king because it's the king who's to, to lead the, uh, who's to set the pace. And in chapter 22, verse 1, to be even more specific, the Lord says to Jeremiah, go down to the palace of the, of the king, beard him in his den and and give him these words. Proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through the gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressors the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of the palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. In other words, I'll restore Jerusalem to a position of preeminence among the nations, and you'll again be a source of blessing to the world around you. But if you don't obey these commands, the Lord says, I swear by myself. That's the strongest oath which God can take, because there's no, nothing else to swear by. 
says, I swear by myself, this palace will become a ruin. And they will say, God will never take this place down. This is where God lives. And God says, though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, I will surely make you like a desert, like towns not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up your fine cedar beams, the beams with which Zedekiah had, had built his house, and throw them into the fire. People from many nations will pass by this city and will ask one another, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, Because you have forsaken the covenant of the Lord, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and, and served other gods. He addresses a word to the, uh, to the people. He says, Submit to what it is that God is doing to your city. Listen to him. Submit your heart to him and to his word. And he says to the king, you do what's right. Because the key to the righteousness of a nation is the righteousness of its leadership. It's when its leadership is righteous that a nation can begin to do what's right. And God will, will avert the judgment that he determines upon a people. It's righteousness that exalts a nation. Uh, most of us, I'm sure, are Republicans. But frankly, it's not the Republican Party... <laughs> They will save America. They will not. And for those of you that are Democrats, it is not the Democratic Party that will, that will save the United States. Not even Mr. Reagan or anybody else who's elected this, this coming year. Uh, it's righteousness, and it's righteous people. Righteousness doesn't exist in abstract. It exists in people. It's right thinking, right living, right believing people that make a nation great. And, and we need to keep that in mind when we set about electing our officials. And not just vote the party, but vote for righteous men and righteous women to be in positions of leadership. That's the only salvation for our nation. God said to Judah, if, if, you, if you start taking care of the weak and the homeless then I'll take care of you. Now, to be realistic, there are really no kings that can be uh, perfectly righteous. And uh, in chapter 23, Jeremiah pronounces a woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. And then he goes on to describe one who's coming someday who is unlike the shepherds. The shepherds are the kings. This long line of inept, careless uh, kings that have presided over Judah. He says in verse 5, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch or a righteous shoot. He uses a word that's used to describe a, a shoot that comes up from a dead stump. It's as though God cuts down the, the tree of David, the line of David. And out of that, that seemingly dead line there comes a shoot who's described as a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. It's a play on, uh, his name is a play on the name of Zedekiah, who is, the, uh, who is the reigning king, whose name meant our Lord is righteous, but who as a man was very unrighteous. But uh, the word that he uses here, Yahweh Tzidkanu, means our Lord, the righteous one. And, and this, is a, this is a prediction 
of the coming of Messiah, our Lord, who is the only king who, who can ever set things right. We're going to have to wait until he comes and takes up his, his position as king of the world before everything is going to be right. But in the meantime, what we need to look for is men who have a measure and a large measure of righteousness. Now, what's true of a nation is also true of us individually. We never think of God as becoming our enemy, but he, he may well do that. He's done it for me, and I'm sure he's done it for you. You know, what happens? We turn our backs on the Lord, and, and we just walk away from him, and uh, he, he desperately tries to bring us back. He sends people to talk to us and to share the word with us and to surround us with love and bring us back to a place of obedience, and we just, we just keep right on going. And so the Lord takes his hands off of us, and he lets us suffer the consequences of our evil actions. We reap what we sow. There is that law of inevitable consequence that we can't get away from. And we begin to make bad decisions that destroy our health and destroy our businesses and wreck our marriages and ruin our relationships with one another and drive away our kids. And pretty soon we're just like Israel. We say, Lord, help. And he says, look, I didn't come to save you from the consequences of your sin. I came to save you from sin. And he'll let us live with the consequences of our sin until we're willing to say, Lord, I, I realize what I've done. I, I realize this heavy yoke that I'm bearing is the result of, of my own malfeasance, my own sin, my own, my own iniquity. And then, then he'll come to our, to our rescue. But he didn't come to rescue us from the ongoing effects of, the, of, the, of our own actions, our own evil actions. He, he will become our enemy. He will fight against us. He'll fight on the side of, of our enemies in order to, to get across to us this vital point that he came to save from sin. Now, we need to understand that the consequences of our sin today are not the result of some past sin. It's not some terrible thing we did that way back there for which we have Long, you know, we've long since repented and been forgiven and somehow think that God is visiting judgment on us now because of something back there, an abortion or unwise decision that we make. God doesn't operate like that. He's talking about the sins we persist in. If we go on in sin, dwell in it, then he'll let us live with, with the consequences. I've been reading George MacDonald's little... Uh, book on the Christian life called Life Eternal. And uh, I thought this was very good. He says, he, uh, he would have us rid of all discontent, all fear, all grudging, all bitterness in word or thought, all gauging and measuring of our own worth with a different rod from that which we apply to another. He would have no curling of the lip in us, no indifference, to the man whose service we use. No desire to excel another, no contentment at gaining by another's loss. He would not have us receive the smallest service without gratitude, would not hear from us a tone to jar the heart of another, a word to make it ache, be the ache ever so transient. From such as from all other sins, Jesus was born to deliver us, not primarily from the punishment of any of them, he came to make us good, and therein blessed children. Uh, we, we recognize the pain of our sin often without realizing the source of it. What God wants us to realize is that the source of our pain is sin, and it's from that that God wants to deliver us. 
And the real mark of reality is not the uh, extravagant, uh, obvious religious things that we do, such as showing up here on church and paying a tithe and being involved in uh, the ministry in, to, some, to some degree. It's, it's these small things, these matters of the heart that James talks about, visiting widows and, and, and orphans and the afflicted, these quiet, unseen acts of mercy for which no one ever writes you up or, or notices. It. That's the real mark. A willingness to put away resentment and bitterness and, and jealousy and, and gossip and a divisive spirit and uh, to, to treat our husbands and wives with respect and to love our children and, and to take note of, of where they are and what needs to be done and, and to minister to their needs no matter what it, what it costs us. To show kindness to the checker in the supermarket or the stock boy that takes your your groceries out to the to the car. Uh, it's those small things that matter. Uh, working on your marriage, staying with it no matter what it costs you. Working on your tongue, asking God to deliver you from sharpness of tongue that hurts and causes ache uh, in others. All these little things we say, which in the end are really the big things, and and if we don't deal with them, God will let us go on and live with the consequences of of our evil and we begin to feel pain and you know we sense that we're isolated and we're cutting ourselves off from others and that's then we say God deliver me from that save my marriage and God says well what we really want to do is save you that's what God is in the process of doing saving us and not saving us from the consequences of our sin but saving us from sin itself I mentioned Friday afternoon at Bernie's uh, memorial service that I wanted to keep my notes for that service, and so um, uh, we we got a word processor in our office here a couple of months ago, and I've been been typing up all my notes on that uh, wonderful machine, and so I wanted to to preserve the notes, and so I sent uh, sent our computer a message to save these notes, and a few minutes later. Uh, Signal came up on the screen. It said, Saving Bernie. I'd given the notes the name Bernie, just so I uh, would be able to recover it. And a few minutes later, the signal came back, Bernie is saved. And I thought, that's a little parable on Bernie's life right there, that all through his life, the Lord was saving Bernie. Not from the consequences of his sin, but from his sin. And we saw it. We saw Bernie become, over the years, a, a softer, more gentle, more loving, more gracious man as God began to work in his heart. He was saving Bernie. And now Bernie is saved. When he, when he saw the Lord, as John says, he became like him. He all along was a son of God, though like all of us, he didn't look like a son of God. He just looked like Bernie Friend. But when he saw the Lord, he became like the Lord. See, and that's the end of the process when we're saved. But all along... God is saving us. He's delivering us. He's freeing us from our sin. As we read the scripture and we see what we are and we see what we need to do to change and we ask God to begin to change us, then he begins to change us. It's not the failures that God is concerned with. It's the attitude of heart. See? It's a desire to be a different man or a different woman or a different boy or, or girl. I, the, a businessman, acquaintance of mine, wrote an article in a magazine 
recently, and I read it to the men on Wednesday morning. I, I'd like to read it again because it states so well what, what we're talking about. <clears throat> he said, Jesus did the most ordinary kinds of things. It takes all God's power uh, in us to do the simplest things his way. Christianity is not a way of doing special things. It is a special way of doing everything we do. Can I talk to a woman the way Jesus did? Or ask for a drink of water or cook a fish or, or walk through my hometown and talk to my men as, as he did? The dusty pedestrian duties of life demand God Almighty in us. It takes as much of the power of God for me to go through the regular routine as it does for me to preach a sermon or write a religious book. An evening with my wife, a golf tournament with my son, an ice cream adventure with my daughter, a conference on financial budgets. I'm not supposed to be a gilt-edged spook with wings making a holy hum, one half human and one half angel. I am a normal, natural, down-to-earth man, full of creation's practical spirit, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians dressed up in mod clothes. And that's what... That's what the Lord wants. He doesn't want us to be weird and strange and, and in the eyes of the world, religious and pious. He wants us to be ordinary, down-to-earth folks, filled with the goodness of God and displaying the character of God wherever we, wherever we go and proclaiming the message, the good news, that, that the Lord wants to change everybody in whatever sphere of, of influence you find yourself. That's how we change the world. Some of you may be called upon, as Jeremiah was, to address presidents and statesmen and, and leaders and, and to call them to repentance and to live out the life of God before them. Others might, uh, might uh, have a responsibility of living that life in a home where you never meet a politician or have any direct influence on, on our leaders, but you can affect your sphere of, uh, of, of influence as you live like this, this kind of of. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, living in, in your style of dress and your lifestyle. And as you begin to see God change the lives of others. And, and if we become righteous, we can change our world. We're inclined to think we can't do much. I mean, what are we? We're in total 900 people, something like that. And how can we change, change the city of Boise or or the world, but we can, as we've seen over and over again, it's the church that is the secret government of the universe. It's it is, as we act in, in righteous, God-like ways that we can change our society. Jesus said, you and you alone are the salt of the earth, not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, not the Liber Libertarian Party. You and you alone, you Christians, are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. And how, how, can we, uh, how can we fail to be what God intends us to be? Let's pray. We want to share together the Lord's table this morning. It's fitting that we should do so. It's a way of remembering our Lord's death until he comes. Remembering the historical fact of his death. And perhaps more important, the results of that death in our life. It was his broken body that, that made it possible for us to, uh, to live with wholeness and with health in the world. And it was his, uh, 
It was his death that makes, makes life uh, available to us. So as we, uh, as we gather around this table, let's, let's remember him and remember what this means to us in terms of what we can do in our world. Father, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you that uh, it is possible for us to do far beyond what we, can, we could ever imagine or dream or fantasize about because of your power within us. We are not impotent to change things. We can, in our realm of responsibility, the situation to which you've called us, our home, our office, our classroom, our shop, our farm, we can have an impact upon, upon these times as we lay hold of your indwelling life and we live your life out in our world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.